This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. So Kelly, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking with Aaron Nequist. Aaron is a liturgist and writer, and we are so glad to have him here. He was going to be with us at our recent live event in New York City talking about uncertainty and ambiguity. For everyone's health, the cathedral is closed for public services, and we canceled that event. But we're really grateful that Aaron is here to talk with us today in this online format. So welcome, Aaron. Glad to jump in this conversation. It was, it was so the right decision to not have the live event, of course, but it was sad. I mean, that it was really going to be a cool thing. So, um, but yeah, excited about this. Just to introduce you to some of our listeners who may not know all about your work. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do, what you've been doing lately? Yeah, I've been... <laughs> In a former life, I was a worship leader and a pastor in kind of evangelical type megachurch settings. And that's how I grew up. And there is a lot of goodness in that. And yet there got to a point where I just said, I I can't stay inside this only. It's beautiful in, in all the ways that it's trying to be beautiful, but it's just too thin. And so that kind of launched me personally into a well, I haven't lost faith in Christ and, you know, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the poor in spirit. And the way of Jesus is still so compelling. And so have just been trying to learn from uh, first from other Christian traditions. How are they doing it? And what are all these things that our kind of evangelical arrogance kind of threw out (laughs) that we Mm -hmm. need to recapture and so that got me back into liturgy and understanding more of the historical church that's not anything that i'd ever known much about but like a spiritual journey often does it's also propelled me outside of that and so the search for what is true and what is beautiful and what is good and what is god doing all over the planet in even the most surprising ways has been really interesting. So I guess maybe the short answer is I'm trying to figure out how to bring as many streams together rather than saying who's all right, a hundred percent right. And let's believe them and then reject everything else. No, 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 no. What can we learn from every stream that is trying to align with the goodness and what God is doing in the world? So. In the midst of all that, what specifically can you tell us what a liturgist does? Yeah, the word liturgy um, can be translated as just the work of the people. And so every single church has a liturgy. It's what the people do when we come together. Now, liturgy in the common understanding tends to be associated with high church, more historic, but widely Every church has a liturgy. In the church I used to be a part of, our liturgy was a loud song, then a loud song, then a really loud song, (laughs) then offering, then a sermon, then an earnest song. It was was the same liturgy every week. So a liturgist is uh, simply understood the person saying, here's what we're doing. Here's where we're going together. Here's, Here's the work you get to do. Here's what I'll offer. In many ways, the choir director or the orchestra leader, or, you know, the person who calls everybody together. 
So let me ask you a question about that, Aaron, because yeah. that's interesting. You know, I'm in a community of Episcopalian faith. You know, we look at liturgy as being all of the things that we do a part of the Eucharist. Yep. And so I would not think of an evangelical church being uh, liturgical. Yeah. Is that a new word for you? I mean, how did, how did you come to that? Liturgy is actually, in some evangelical circles, a dirty word. I mean, liturgy is like dead religion. You know, it's what, mm-hmm. the, what the Pharisees did. It's, it's you know, <laughs> we just, and, and we had this idea about ourselves that we weren't like doing what other people told us to do. We were just like making it up except we made it up the same way every Sunday. <laughs> so, uh, every church has an, an order and a structure, and that's really yeah. good. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So when I started realizing that we all had a liturgy, and in fact, our liturgy was really narrow. Um, mm-hmm. I used to talk about it as I was trying to explain it to my wife, kind of why we were expanding the liturgy, uh, as it were. And she said, oh, so basically you want to serve a well-balanced meal every week. And that huh. was for me so profound because I realized I was leading one single kind of meal. And it wasn't a bad meal. It was like chicken and rice and then we had a vegetable or something like that. But I served it every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, wondering why our community wasn't getting healthier. And so learning from other traditions, I began to realize, wait, 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 other traditions do a confession and an assurance every week. We never mm-hmm. did that. But what are we missing by not having those moments where we just pause and say, where did God's love flow through me this week? Where didn't it? I mean, that is a profound practice that has been really helpful. Um, another big one, our, our tradition was all about happiness, celebration, triumphant, like it was loud, loud, and louder. And I come to find a third of the book of Psalms from the scriptures were laments, a third. Mm-hmm. And approximately 0% of our songs were laments. And I was just like, well, what are we missing not having the language for when life falls apart. So trying to expand what is a well-balanced meal. I mean, we want to become full human beings the way that we are made to be. And that probably requires more than just one form over and over and over. It's interesting, you know, liturgy is so often tied to certain religious structures, or at least in the common parlance we think about it. Although you're right, other churches and other groups do have liturgy. It just may not be as intentional. Yeah. But it's as we think about being full human beings, uh, one of the things that Mark always brings up is that, you know, we're, what is it, Mark, the quote about spiritual beings? Yeah. So the uh, the quote is, is that we're not uh, human beings having spiritual experiences, but rather we are spiritual beings having human experiences. Mm. I love that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that, that quote. Um, James K.A. Smith, uh, probably 10 years ago, wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And his observation was, he was coming from an education standpoint, so not even from a spiritual standpoint, that they're discovering that just giving students more knowledge doesn't actually change their lives. It just gives them more knowledge. What changes a human being is when we redirect the energy and the loves of our hearts. And he says, the only way we do that is by these liturgical practices. And so he did an entire chapter Mm -hmm on the liturgy of the shopping mall. 
And mm-hmm. he walked through how every decision, I mean, there's no natural lighting. What is that? How does that form us to understand time and understand the natural world? Um, every model in every window is a size zero. How does that liturgically form us to think of the human body and our own deficiencies, how we don't fit? Like, and he, he spent a whole chapter, the liturgy of the shopping mall. And I remember by the end of that, thinking there is so much more to just humanity, let alone spiritual communities when they get together. So James K.A. Smith, Desiring the Kingdom. I love it. Wow. So do you think liturgy exists outside of uh, organized religion and practice? Absolutely. Like that example shows, I think it's everywhere. It's the things that we do over and over and over that form us as we do it. And so the question is not, are we liturgical? The question is, in what ways do our current set of liturgies form us? So yeah, I think liturgies happen everywhere. And um, we're always being formed. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We are always being formed. The question is, in what way? Yes, I would, I would definitely lean in on that, right? So we're not stagnant beings. I mean, every moment we are, in some ways, transforming, changing, adapting. You know, that's the way yeah. of life. And so yeah. our spiritual experiences are, are part of that. You know, and, I, and the reason why I ask about the question of liturgy and it being a habit, like you said, of the shopping mall, I think about the people that uh, consider themselves agnostic or no practice whatsoever, atheist, whatever word you want to use. What does their liturgy look like? Knowledge is from the head and, you know, the faith comes from the heart. And so there's a big separation there of such. And certainly from my own personal experience with liturgy, that's what allows me to feel everything inside here and get away from here. I mean, yes, Yes. there's a, there's a a procedure to which we do our things and, we confess, but yet, you know, I feel it here when I do, then it's authentic and then it's moving, it's transformative. For yeah, me. that's beautiful. One of my friends is a humanist chaplain in California, and we always talk about mindfulness and um, centering and the role of silence. I mean, he will talk my ear off about why silence is so critical Absolutely. as a human, as a human being. Absolutely. And I remember we had this great conversation. He goes, now, I don't believe we're sitting in the presence of some grand being or whatever, but brain science tells us what happens when we are, I mean, it's just such a beautiful, constructive conversation. And uh, so, yes, I think we are all liturgical beings. Oh, totally. And as you said, silence is liturgy itself. You don't need words to experience that that oneness and that connection that yeah. is that not liturgy in itself. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That all brings it back around to what we were talking about just a minute ago is that you know, through this series of radical love live, we've been working on different takes on the relationship between spirituality and mm. religion, particularly mm. as a lot of traditional religious structures are losing members. People are questioning their relevance is trying to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas about the way that you're looking at the, the relationship between spirituality and yeah. religion? I'll start just kind of in simplistic terms and then we can maybe dive down a little bit. For me, like spirituality has to do with an openness and an awareness. And then also some sort of consent 
to something bigger and deeper and fuller. And I think both of these sides are really important. Openness and consent. Seeing and saying yes. And so in terms of religion, we, we believe very deeply no one religion owns that. No one religion owns all the spirituality inside of their building. But I, as disillusioned as I am right now about religion, I cannot yet see a way that we as humans can engage the fullness of the spiritual reality without some sort of wise container. I'll say it this way. We don't learn anything in life without some sort of wise container. If I just go to the gym and I just say, well, I'm just going to do a crazy make it, make them up, whatever I feel today. Um, that's me. That's me at the gym, by the way. <laughs> well, at least you're there. <laughs> I'm not even there, but um, that's not the same as coming to someone who has been training others for years and can say, you know, we actually have learned some things about how the human body gets into shape. Let's figure out a, uh, a pathway for you to really actualize this health. So I think there's something about the wild, mysterious nature of spirituality and the very needed container um, to help us engage it well. That's really powerful. You know, one of the foundations of Radical Love Live is uh, spirituality outside of the boxes. Yeah. And the people that we want to uh, tune into what we're doing here is the nuns and the duns and the spiritual but not religious. What does that container look like for somebody that considers themselves to be in one of those categories? What would that container look like? If I said, you know what, that God stuff, I'm just not there. So, and maybe not like your humanist friend, but just somebody that is just outside of that. Well, can I take a step toward that question? You can go anywhere you want. Let me tell you one practice that we did inside the Christian story, and then maybe that will propel us into how we engage that outside the story. In 2016, there was, there was this election that was happening. Did you hear about that election mm. in 2016? Yeah. Something saw a headline or two. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Something, something happened. <laughs> but um, that fall, as things were just getting uglier and uglier. We are part of this uh, little community in Chicago and we realized we're not going to make it as a society. (laughs) We're not going to make it as a human race. We're going to destroy each other. So what can we do? And so from our tradition, we said, you know, Jesus did teach, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And so we said, you know, we believe that Jesus said that, and none of us ever do it. And <laughs> I laugh and it's not funny, but it's, but no, it's true. None <laughs> because of that's, us. A, that's a tall order. Absolutely. And so we said, you know what? In this moment, we are going to commit to every single Sunday as part of our liturgy. Part of this well-balanced meal was going to be this really hard to eat vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> the bitter herbs. <laughs> bitter herbs, indeed. <laughs> totally. And so we would do a confession and then silence and, uh, and an assurance, and then we would pray for one of our enemies. And some weeks I'd say, you know, let's pray for a global enemy, you know, someone who wishes our country harm or 
Um, some weeks we'd say, you know what, is there someone in your life who has become like an enemy? And those were really quiet, tender moments because we all have those kinds of relationships. But then a couple different Sundays, especially in October and uh, getting toward November, we put up on the screen a picture of Hillary Clinton's face and a picture of Trump's face. And we said, would you take a moment to pray, not for the one you're for, for the other one? And there was an audible groan in the room. <laughs> and we were saying, we don't have to agree. We don't have to say, may their policies succeed, but they are made in God's image. And so we pray that God would bless them as their daughter and son. You know, and it was, we hated it and no one wanted to do it again. And we did it again. And all that to say, that was one of those practices that helped form us into the kinds of people we know the world needs us to become that we don't know how we would otherwise. And so maybe I use that as a springboard into the, into the other conversation about beyond the church uh, walls, which I think would have to include like what my humanist friend Bart was talking about, where these moments where we go inward, we go into silence, we center ourselves from the noise and the craziness, but also we have intentional practices with the other. And in this moment, in this day and age where you are either with me or you are an idiot, you, are, you either agree with everything I believe or you are dead to me. That's not going to get us very far as a society and as a people. And so I would say at the very least, the kind of liturgy that every human needs, religious or not, is liturgy that brings us deep into our deepest parts and a liturgy that helps us engage not just our friends, not just our family, but the other on the other side. That was a long answer, probably a lot well, longer but It's than a good answer, answer and it's a valuable answer because the reality is we have our human family and the dynamics have changed in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, there's always been some element of people that are not a part of church that have yeah. been unchurched, but it's gone on to another level because, you know, while somebody might sit in a pew and, and not understand or completely question why they're there, they did it out of habit or by force or yeah. by... That's just the way things are done. And we've had this radical change and we've seen the hypocrisy inside of organization and things that fall apart. And people are like, I'm just done. And they have turned their back on what I say is their innate spirituality, right? We're mm -hmm. all born with that. Yeah. And yet they've turned their back to it. And so there's yep. no reconciliation. There's no honoring it. There's just ambivalence or hurt or something else. And they're just, it's just a wall. Yeah. And so for us that are slightly different positions, how do we invite them back, if anything else, for this conversation and, and, build a, and build a community? It has felt like in the last few years that there's only two options. One is double down on the faith that stopped working a long time ago and just maybe turn our brains off or turn our hearts off and just double down or jump ship from the whole thing. And I mean, if there's one thing I could say to the world, because I'm clinging to it so deeply is those are two terrible options. <laughs> and thankfully they're not the only options. There are, there is, there are multiple third ways. And that's why I'm so excited yeah. about what you guys are doing. Yeah. That's precisely from my, 
from my vantage point, what you guys are trying to explore and take as many people with you as possible. So I love the work that you're doing. Thank you, Aaron. That's, yeah. that's very kind um, because it is the third way. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not only were you talking to people who are outside of religious organizations, but also having conversations with the, the people within religious organizations yeah. who are saying, yeah. I can't see past this particular verse that tells me that this is the only yeah. way yep. for my soul to have any fulfillment. That's and right. then they talk with somebody like me who's also in that tradition, but I look around and I say, I have a really hard time seeing how God would allow millions and billions of people around the planet to have been deceived for centuries or yeah. thousands of years and be outside of that grace. Yeah. And it goes back to that whole incomprehensibility. It's sure. okay for me to, you know, when they say, well, how do you explain it for me to say, I don't know. Yeah. I know that I, I believe in love <laughs> and I believe in grace, but I don't know all the mechanics yeah. of everybody's path to fulfillment. Yeah. And that's okay that I don't know it. That's why I have yep. faith. That's right. I guess that brings us back to ambiguity and uncertainty. When we first started talking about inviting you into the, the live event, the episode that was around uncertainty and ambiguity was appealing. And I just want to ask what it is, what's attractive to you about the topics of uncertainty and ambiguity? Yeah, maybe to start at this point, certainty has been such a colossal disappointment. Mm. Certainty promises so much and it delivers on very little of that promise. And I think for a while, it's really exciting and it has its own energy, but then real life happens and shows the underbelly. And again, you either need to close your eyes. It's back to those two bad choices. You either need to close your eyes. Well, I didn't see it. You know, the man behind the curtain. No, no, there's no man there, you know. Or you need to jump ship from the whole thing. And I think, again, that's such a, we lose so much, so much unnecessarily when we jump ship from the whole thing. But the third way is what do I do with my disappointment? I thought reality worked in a different way. I thought I had the three steps and the five points and, and the answers, and I don't. And so I think it, for me, led to uh, a lot of heartbreak. I'm an Enneagram four, so I love the, the sorrow and the drama. <laughs> but if I'm not careful, I can get stuck in it. And I become melancholy and it's all darkness. And so some of the work has been, can I forgive reality? <laughs> it has disappointed me so deeply. Can I forgive it? And then what's beyond certainty and then total disillusionment? Is there a step beyond that? And I can say I'm midlife. So I've had half of my life. I still hopefully have a, have a lot more to go. So I hope I get to experience more of this. But I've, I have tasted a couple times at least of some of the beauty beyond the disillusionment and some of the goodness, like Kelly, you were mentioning, some of the goodness of not having to figure it all out, but just to be able to receive it. It's not easy. I mean, we're in this crazy moment as a country and world right now 
you know, we always talk about how much we, we get to learn in the in-between, you know, until you're there and it sucks. <laughs> yeah. So you have um, learned to, shall we say, be comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. Is that the right word? or is That's it- probably giving me too much credit. I really believe by grace and through some of these guides who have gone before, mm-hmm. the, some of these practices and some of these things that we get to do together, there have been some moments where I stop kicking and screaming against reality and just receive it for what it is. So to say I've learned how to do that, tomorrow I'm probably going to kick and scream again. But there are moments. Those bring great comfort and uh, hope. You just used a, a word that is not used often enough, especially in context like this, grace. Is that not grace? Mm. Yeah. You know, they talk about uh, simplicity, complexity, simplicity. At first, every musician plays really simple. And then really mediocre musicians play lots of notes, as many notes as they can fit into every measure. <laughs> and then the greats play simply again. And there's something about that where certainty is that early simplicity, where I know exactly the right three notes and I will play them at the correct time. And there's, there's comfort in that. And I think maybe what's worth noting is that's where we all need to begin. There's nothing wrong beginning with, I mean, when I'm talking to my eight-year-old right now about the coronavirus, Mm-hmm. I will never lie to him, but I don't need to tell him every single terrible potential thing that might happen down the road. No. You know, that's not developmentally helpful. So there, there is a, a gift of that early simplicity. We just can't stay there. Mm. So I think, again, coming from the Christian tradition, I think one of my most, my biggest complaints about our tradition is it so good with people in the early stages and it's so good at answers and it's so good at certainty. And that is a gift. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a gift. It just, when people hit the wall, the church has nothing more to say to them. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking in general terms, of course, of course. you know, and so some of my dreams for spirituality and religion in the future is that of course it would partner with us in the early days where we need some we need some foundations i mean is god good can we be clear on that i really believe god is for the creation that god made that is something i'm holding on to so we need some of those building blocks at first but then we need a faith that can accompany us as a lot of it falls apart and then leads us into another world For my kid, third grade is brilliant for him. (laughs) It is the perfect container for him. But next year, it won't be as helpful. (laughs) And if he's still there in 10 years, the school is doing damage to him. That's a good analogy, actually, to to put it in that context, honestly. Um, So I'm going to ask you uh, a question about the Bible, the text as we have it uh, in our Christian tradition. So you you said something about, is God good? And so... This is my personal thoughts on the uh, text as we uh, know them. And I yeah. look at it as a history book. And for me, when I did that, it allowed me to look at everything inside that in a much different way, in a kinder way, yeah. to be honest with you. That yeah. This is our human family who precedes us. This is our ancestors as they related to the world and how they saw God. And when I did that, 
oh, it took a lot of pressure off of me because otherwise I fought it very hard. And one reason yeah. why I was oh, so yeah. atheistic was because I was like, to me, it was a bunch of bull. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it because of the oh, hurt yeah. that had been used against yeah. me, which goes to the certainty. How do you feel about that? Where, where do you see the Bible in, in yeah. connection with your own? It's faith? a great question. I had maybe two big, <laughs> I want to use the word conversions about the Bible since we're, we're talking about this, but just transition moments. One was in college. So this was about 200 years ago. And we were learning all the things that I hadn't learned growing up mm-hmm. about things that were not true and, and things that were, you know, disproving so much. And of course, you know, as a freshman in college, it was scandalizing. But then I realized, and this was my first step toward this, I realized, you know, whether or not every word of the Bible was literally dictated by God or whether zero of it was, it still requires something outside of me to understand it. The more recent one was realizing maybe what, like you were saying also, it is a human creation, the Bible. And it is what human beings like you and me wrote reflecting on their experience with the Almighty. Mm -hmm. And so I can really trust that something happened to that community something beyond them happened. Do I think every word they wrote in reflection was exactly what God was trying to do? Of course not. And the reason I can say that is because many of the ways I interpret what God is doing in my life don't end up being actually true. (laughs) And it takes me years to look back. One of my friends works with kids. And one of his things that he always says is kids are phenomenal observers of reality but terrible interpreters. Mm. And I think that is brilliant in a lot of ways. I mean, the way as kids, we pick up on what's going on with our parents, but our translations are terrible and can be very damaging. And there's an element of that that I engage the scriptures. I believe something happened. I mean, 2000 years later, we're still talking about it and still reeling from it. But there's also a little, a little distance. The writers were writing from their perspective, from their context. And I think the scriptures are very valuable, but I certainly don't see them as the kind of magic book that I may have growing up. You know, one of the things that if I could whip up some program, and I don't know if anybody would have an interest, but it would be exactly that to take the... I don't want to say mysticism because I, I am very a mystical person. You know, I believe that yeah. that's core to our spirituality. I mean, it is faith yeah. and that's elemental. But maybe I, I'm not quite sure what the word is. Is this the misunderstanding, the misapplication of the text yeah. and how yeah. it's been used as certainty or certitude? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a word, yeah. Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it used the other. But certitude is not a Oh, well, that, yeah, that was that a was that new episode. <laughs> yeah. Certitude. But, you know, engage in honest conversation that enlightens and doesn't use it as, a, as something to defend a faith, but to open up and explain, yeah. you know, the context and why this happened. And there's a richness inside of all of that. And like you said, you can pull threads of, of our ancestors' spirituality and their beliefs out of that. And it's not a question about was this right or not true, false, you know, do the binary on it, but simply take it 
and apply some some context to it. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned inside of that, you know, in today's world. History is is valuable to us humans. Oh yeah. And you saying that it it raises a question. Um, did you ever read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why? Yeah. I just thought it was such a simple and brilliant idea yeah. that so many of us start with what or, or how, right. mm-hmm. but we've got to start with the why. Why does this exist? Yeah. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about the why of faith and even the why of my Christian faith. And it has shifted so profoundly in the last 10 years from the why is how can I believe correctly about God mm-hmm. to how can I get swept up in what God is doing both in me to try to heal and form me, but also what God is trying to do to heal and form the world. And I, I wrote a book last year and the framework was moving from a belief-based faith to a practice-based faith. And maybe even in this conversation, I would say a belief-based faith to a becoming-based faith. Mm. So back to our conversation about the Bible, I don't read the Bible so I can know more facts (laughs) and make sure I'm more correct than I was yesterday. First of all, who cares as if my correctness makes the world better, right? Mm -hmm. But I absolutely read, to go back to that other example, when Jesus talks about how we should engage our enemies, I mean, that confronts something in me. And if I actually do it, I become someone different. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that gets really compelling. So did Jesus actually say those words and the writer dictated verbatim what Jesus said? I don't know. And and Um, remembered it for a hundred years. And remembered it 40 years later. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty un, it's pretty unbelievable, but here's the thing. When I meditate on those words and more than meditate, when I put them into practice, my life changes in ways that I cannot describe. Mm -hmm. So then I'm like, man, maybe I am a Christian. Maybe I do believe in the Bible, but not in, not in the magical way in the, it contains something that doesn't make me correct it makes me a little more human. You know, so we're talking about ambiguity and uncertainty. We're certainly doing a good job in this conversation. I want to go back to our, our very first conversation we had back in January. The topic was crisis and change, which this fits yeah. into this because, yes, mm-hmm. when we look at institutions, as we know, not just in the Christian tradition, but virtually all faith traditions are in crisis right now I, yeah. because it is this time in, our, in the human history to where people are struggling with it. Yeah, um, it's so true. I'm going to ask a question that we uh, asked in January. Are you hopeful for the future of our faith and the tradition and spirituality? Short answer is long-term, absolutely, maybe more than ever. Short-term, oh, hell no. So I, I have a very, very dualistic viewpoint of short-term and long-term. Yeah. Uh, one of my mentors through writing, Dallas Willard, someone asked him, how have you not lost faith in the church Mm -hmm. with all that's going on? And his answer was, oh, you know, quoting the Bible, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But then he paused and he said, but a lot of 501c3s are going to have to close their doors. 
And I just remember that captured the both and the way of Jesus is as compelling, at least to me now, as it has ever been. Um, I spend, when I read the Bible, it's mostly the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The, the Beatitudes, and I mean, it's just, it's gold. I, I read it and I say, 2,000 years ago, he was right about everything, about how humanity works. I mean, it was just, it's so brilliant. But I mean, our churches are not built on Jesus's teachings. Not, <laughs> not, not in those, that way. Yeah. Not those teachings. And so there's going to be a lot of shaking and crumbling. And I say that with no glee. And so what do we do for folks like that? Because they're going to continue to stream out, disillusioned, yeah. heartbroken. Yeah. You know, there are people that get hurt by the church like me. That's part of my story as a kid because yeah. I was told that yep. I was a defect according to the Bible. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. But people who believe yeah. earnestly and completely are committed to, the, to what they understand is the faith, and yet they're just going to come to that wall and like, hurt, and then That's right. they're going to go, this is it? Well, what can we do? Yeah. What can we do? Yeah. You guys are doing it. Probably not everything that needs to be done. We're not putting that on your shoulders. But I would say two things. One, we desperately need either real communities or virtual communities where we look around the circle and people say, you're not crazy. Mm. I had that happen to me two times in my life where my faith was almost gone, where it was falling apart. And the second one, I had a, an experience with a group of people and it, that was it. We just looked at each other and said, you're not crazy and you're not alone. You didn't leave the church because something's broken in you. You left the church because it's a sinking ship and you know it. You left the church because there's something right in you. There's something alive in you. So I think if we're forced to back to that observers and translators, we observe we don't fit in the church anymore, but sometimes we accidentally translate it. Well, there's something wrong with me. No, there's something alive in you. And so the first answer would be we desperately need communities, circles, even a single friend that reminds us we're not crazy and we're not alone. And then the second thing I think we need, I, I know I'm a broken record on this. We need practices that ground us because just knowing it is not enough. Knowing we're not crazy is not enough, but what are the practices that get that knowledge into our bones? Um, like we were talking about mindfulness and centering prayer, all these different practices. There's no one size fits all. I mean, it, it, we've got to find our own way, but we really need concrete, tactile ways of engaging our whole bodies, not just our brains in this new reality. Those are some powerful words, my friend. As we're talking about ritual, I just read the other day that since we're all, we're all at home, and yeah. we're all separate from each other these days. The Pope said that people can confess directly to God instead of going it. to their yes. priest. The reason I bring that up is I always thought that it was brilliant that that particular branch of the church had developed rituals yeah. that even if people didn't feel forgiven, yeah. if they didn't feel like they had been relieved of their guilt, they could say, I have a moment that I can point to. Yeah. I did the practice. Yeah. And therefore, I know that I'm, you know, in that yes. case, you're ritually clean or whatever. Yeah. And there, there's value in that because our own feelings and our own thoughts are like the weather. It changes yeah. from day to day. Yeah. And if we're just based on, do I feel like I'm in line with God? 
sometimes it's better to have something to point to and say, you know, I'm doing the practice, you know, even on the days I don't believe. Yeah, yeah. the The confession is such a great example of what we're talking about in that there is wisdom in confessing our sins to another trusted person. There is wisdom in when it, when you speak it, it becomes more real. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was just telling my wife about this, about a different topic, about how in a couple of the real heartbreak moments, I remember calling my parents when we had our first miscarriage. We were driving home and I was real stoic. I, you know, just come from the hospital. We were, you know, and I remember getting on the phone and saying, you know, oh man, I'm tearing up right now, saying, hey mom, I got some bad news. And it became so real when I spoke it. It's like I spoke it into existence. And Mm -hmm. so the deep wisdom of when we name the ways we have fallen short of love out loud, it becomes real and it can be, you know, addressed and healed. It's so beautiful. But the church then pours cement around that practice and then owns it and claims it. And now we have this situation where millions of people believe they can't confess to God without somebody. Isn't that the trajectory of religion, right? Like at first it comes around and offers this great wise container and then it just chokes the oxygen out of it. But then something else pops up. There's That's right. an awesome rock band that makes me feel good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, with lots of smoke and incense. That's right. So I feel holy. Let's all be happy. That's all... Yeah, pendulum swinging yeah. all over the place. And in some ways, maybe some of that is good because it brings some correction. But I think many of us are sick of, of the pendulums. You know, I don't want the next cool partial story. Back to what we, I said right at the beginning. Can we figure out how to bring more of the streams together? So it's not just the, the cool new stream, yeah. but it's the wider river. Yeah. You know? Well said. So... You're in seminary, yes. 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 Where do you see yourself when you get out? What are you going to be doing with this? <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I really don't know. And, and that's not a cop-out. I did 19 years of church work where I was on almost every Sunday for 19 years. And this is kind of like a midlife pause. And it has been glorious. For a while, we didn't go to church. And not out of like some sort of like arms folded, just out of, hey, Sunday mornings are awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's go for a walk. And, and that was really healing. Again, you know, every, almost every Sunday for 19 years yeah. working. Yeah. And so that was really beautiful. And now we're a part of a church right in the city that we adore. And so we show up two minutes before the service starts and we just try to be good parishioners and it's a really beautiful season. I would imagine I would get back into some sort of weekly or communal experience. Uh, if only, I think that's just some of what I'm made to do, but I really don't know what it's going to look like. How's that for living in ambiguity? Well, that's, definitely, <laughs> that's, that's definitely a leap of faith. I'm, I'm doing this practice and I don't know I what's going to be. I know, I know. That is faith, my friend. It reminds me yeah. of when I was in a total meltdown not too long ago with my spiritual director over something. And okay. he, uh, he is a Jesuit. So, oh, nice. uh, so he uh, laid some Ignatian uh, on me, uh, Ignatius, and said, faith is putting your foot down in darkness. 
Wow. And then stopped. Yes. Wow. The silence was there. There you are. Wow. Wow. One thing that we've been asking a lot of people is, what do you think is the future of spirituality? Particularly in, in a season like now when we're all in separate spaces and it yeah. looks like we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. Well, I'll probably start by saying I feel less sure about the format right now than I ever have. Only in that I've been so certain that everything is moving away from larger mega gatherings to very localized living rooms and neighborhood, you know, real connection. And that still might happen. And yet we find ourselves in quarantine right now mm. and everything's online. So it's just such a weird moment. It, it's precisely the opposite of where I felt like things needed to go. Like, we need to get off of line. <laughs> I, I don't need more screen in my life. I need more human being, you know? And yet we're in this weird moment. So uh, there's a part of me that's like, who knows how our life is going to change and shift and morph. But I think the, the deeper thing, and it's what I already mentioned, the moving from a belief-based to a practice-based, moving from beliefs to actually belonging to each other moving from beliefs to the kinds of people we're becoming. I'm not trying to all use B words. That's <laughs> just how it's working. But um, the shift from correctness to participation. I think all those things are so not only needed, but what so many of us long for. I'm hoping that will continue to take root. But man, in terms of the form, <laughs> I am as, as lost for a prediction right now as I've ever been. Yeah, I think we're doing it right now. I think we're yeah. pioneering whatever it's gonna well, be. Yeah, that's true. We're, what's that? We, we make the road by walking, you know? Mm. So do you have any projects you're working on? Do you have any books that you're writing? No, well, I'm actually, I wanna write a second book at some point, but right now I'm so taken by the idea of offering ways to actually practice. You know, I have this new liturgy project that I've been working on for a while. And it's just these 25 minute journeys of music and prayer and song and reflection. And then right now on my podcast, I've actually switched the podcast over and it's just practices for pandemic. And every week while we're in this, I'm working with somebody, somebody who I think is just brilliant about some part of this journey. And they're gonna lead a 15 minute meditation that helps us, what do we do with our anxiety? What do we do with our anger? What do we do with our fear? And so we did the first one last week, my Jesuit uh, spiritual director just did this, probably his most brilliant thing that he does. And then uh, I have two or three being recorded this week and we'll just keep sharing it. So again, trying to resource people to not just have more things to think about, but more things to do. And so that's the Eternal Current podcast, if anybody is interested. Yeah, absolutely. We encourage everybody to go there and listen to those practices. And also the new liturgy series is wonderful. Oh, thank I, you. I, I particularly love the lament. Yeah. That I think it was last year, yes. the year before that you did that. And that was really powerful. And the lament liturgy is, it's about 15 minutes long. And two good things about it. One, we desperately need it right now. 
And then the second thing is it's free. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how I charge American dollars for Lament. So it's a free download for anybody who wants it. Awesome. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much for taking time. Oh, to thank you very much to talk to you guys. Sorry we didn't get to hang out with you yeah, live. We will. In New York, Absolutely. We will. Someday. We'll, you will we'll return. It. Yep. And we will have live events around the <laughs> right. We'll have it. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series, on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at RadicalLove.Live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Thank you.